Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Thank you so much, Alex, for the uh, introduction. Uh, like you said, uh, my name is Surajai Ratna. Um, we sort of went in a little bit of a different order with Chad you know, very nicely covering uh, the principles of ingual lymph node dissection and how they're being applied with the robotic approach. Uh, I will actually be addressing sort of what happens usually before that, which is management of the primary tumor. Uh, uh, so no relevant disclosures. Um, so why should I care? You know, um, it's a rare disease. You know, a lot of urologists will say they only see a handful of this in their entire career. So some of the residents might be thinking, there's only like three questions on the in-service. I'm fine. I don't need to spend that much time on it. But, you know, the reality is, even though it's a relatively rare disease in the Western world, um, there are subsets where it's a higher prevalence. And as uh, residents who have been working in major cities with a lot of immigrant uh, population probably realize that the developing world does have a higher prevalence. And if you're working in a county system, uh, you will likely be able to see uh, these sorts of patients. So it's important to have this understanding. Uh, surgery isn't complicated. You know, there's a tumor on the penis, cut it off. Uh, I think there's a lot of risk uh, taking a very reductive approach like this. You know, we know that penile cancer is undertreated uh, by and large. And so uh, one reason is because patients think that if I go to my doctor, I'm going to get to lose my penis. Uh, and hopefully over the next uh, 20, 30 minutes, uh, we'll understand that there's a lot more nuance uh, in the options uh, that you can offer your patient and how you decide between them and how you uh, counsel patients. Um, and finally, this is a disease that is primarily managed by urology. You know, there are not many people, uh, including physicians, who even really know that penile cancer is a thing. You know, you'll get a lot of patients who are sort of treated as if it was just a bad infection and sort of delays in care. Also, unfortunately for the disease, there's not very many adjuvant or salvage therapies. So the role of medical oncology or radiation oncology is at this point in time, somewhat limited. Um, and so it's important for us to be able to identify the disease, take appropriate action, and counsel patients on anything else they can do to help prevent this from going, uh, progressing any further. So just an overview of what we'll cover. Um, you know, even though the title of this talk is Management of the Primary Tumor, we will do a quick review uh, in order to provide some context of what we're gonna be talking about. Um, we'll be talking about non-surgical treatment options, which are important to consider. Uh, in early uh, stage disease and uh, in centers of excellence that have access to these resources. Uh, and then the bulk of this uh, talk will be about uh, penile surgery uh, and all the variations thereof and reasons why you would choose one over the other. Uh, I think it's also important to talk or just these highlight what we won't be covering. Um, I think these are interesting things uh, that you know, residents who uh, find this interesting can cover on their own. Cancer biology, you know, penile cancer is uh, a disease that is implicated with uh, HPV. So HPV oncogenesis, like in cervical and head and neck cancers, uh, has some interesting biology uh, with next gener generation sequencing. We're finding more about, there's also HPV independent pathways, um, and those are interesting. Ingle lymphadenectomy was just uh, covered by Dr. Rich, 
uh, chemotherapy for advanced disease. Uh, we won't be going over. Unfortunately, this is a short topic because there's not that much that is well studied. And then finally, health-related quality of life uh, issues, uh, both sexual function, body image, and barriers to care um, with you know, disease of a very sensitive part for men's bodies. You know, I think these come into play both for how these patients uh, approach care and what they're willing to uh, accept. Uh, so let's do a brief uh, review over the nuts and bolts of penile cancer. Uh, epidemiology, as we've mentioned, and as most people know, it's a relatively rare disease in the Western world. However, you know, the ACS uh, 2020 estimations are there is about 2,200 expected new cases of penile cancer with 440 deaths. Um, but we'll see that there is even subsets uh, within, you know, taking a look at this map based off of registry data, uh, we can see that even within the United States, there is regional variation on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, when we take a look at numbers from the developing world, South Asia, uh, India, quotes anywhere from two to three per 100,000. And, you know, just as a uh, uh, reference, prostate cancer is over 100 per 100,000. You know, so this is several orders of magnitude smaller than some of the diseases we more commonly treat, but, you know, it's not zero. You know, uh, Brazil, uh, in South America in general has a higher incidence. Brazil quoted as eight, higher than eight at some point. It's probably a little bit lower now. In Africa, Uganda is currently four per 100,000, but there was one point where it was actually the most common male cancer. Um, so again, things to think about depending on the patient population that you're treating right now or maybe treating in the future. Uh, age is a noted risk factor, you know, peak uh, incidence is in the uh, seventh decade of life. Uh, this is data uh, from the UK, uh, 2015 to 2017. Um, and this is looking at incidence of penile cancer during that period. Um, the bar chart uh, of this graph, um, you would refer to the left um, y-axis. And this is actually in five-year intervals. Uh, this is uh, estimating the average number of new cases. And so you can see a peak around 65 to 75 is where the bulk of uh, these cancers are, where the mean resides. Uh, the linear plot that you see on there is relating more to the uh, right-sided axis, uh, which is uh, incidence uh, rates. And again, you see as the patient population gets older, you have um, an increased age standardized uh, incidence uh, risk. Uh, this uh, graph is using SEER data uh, from 2004 to 2016. Uh, from the U.S. and you can see across this over decade period that Hispanics, uh, which uh, are plotted in the green line, have consistently had a higher incidence of penile cancer compared to non-Hispanic whites and blacks uh, and sort of the other races. Uh, using data generated by our own institution, uh, Coral Satala, using NCDB data, uh, was able to show though that African Americans, uh, indicated by the blue line on this uh, Kaplan-Meier plot, have worse outcomes uh, compared to whites, which are in red and uh, other in green. Um, so again, uh, both uh, impact and incidence as well as uh, expected prognosis. Uh, taking a look at risk factors for this disease, uncircumcised status uh, slash phimosis is probably the most well-recognized. Uh, 60 to 75% of patients uh, have uh, either of these issues. Uh, there is some data that suggests poor hygiene or recurrent inflammation infection with uh, recurrent balanitis uh, may be the causative factor and not exactly an intact foreskin. 
Uh, BXO, which is lichen sclerosis for males, uh, is shown to have about a 25% co-occurrence uh, with penile cancer. Uh, again, you know, implicating uh, chronic inflammation um, in this disease. Uh, smoking, as with many cancers, is independently associated with risk. Uh, PUVA, which is uh, phototherapy for UV type A um, uh, treatment, uh, which is used uh, for patients with psoriasis in combination with 8-methoxysorelin, which is topical treatment, uh, has been shown to have a much higher risk. Um, uh, and so, you know, patients uh, with uh, psoriasis should avoid this and look for alternative treatments. Uh, HIV infection, especially with co-occurring HPV, has shown to have a fourfold uh, increase uh, implicating immunosuppression as potentially having a role in the development of the disease. And uh, again, uh, HPV, which is probably also well known as uh, uh, initiating factor, uh, with type 16 being the predominant one, but 18 and 16 also noted as well, and less commonly uh, serotype 31 and 33. Um, of these risk factors, which are modifiable, uh, you know, there's uh, data showing that early circumcision uh, reduces the incidence of um, penile cancer, whether that's an absolute must, uh, given the rarity in some populations, uh, is up for debate. Smoking is obviously a modifiable risk factor. And HPV infection, you know, now that we have vaccines, both the uh, Cervarix, which is the um, bivalent, and the Gardasil, which is the quadrivalent vaccine, uh, certainly have been shown to reduce the incidence of cervical cancer in the female population. And I think there is good uh, evidence to suggest it would be equally effective uh, for penile cancer. Uh, and also to point out that HPV actually has a protective effect um, with almost a 40% improved uh, survival, disease-specific survival in patients who have HPV-positive penile cancer. Uh, quickly reviewing pathology, uh, about 95% of these are all squamous cell carcinoma, um, and there's a couple of variants within uh, classical keratin, uh, keratinizing, um, apologize, uh, is the most common type and has what we would consider an intermediate prognosis. Verrucus uh, um, is a low percentage of HPV involvement and tends to be locally destructive but not invasive. Wardy um, uh, has a higher HPV involvement, um, but a more uh, benign prognosis. And basaloid, which also has high HPV involvement, um, has a uniformly poor prognosis along with sarcomatoid. Uh, here's some slides. Uh, you know, I think uh, in-service no longer includes uh, histology, but I think it provides some information. And certainly when you go out in the real world, you'll want to have good communication with your pathologist if you're doing a lot of oncology. Uh, we can see sort of this very invasive pattern seen on the left for the standard squamous cell carcinoma. Verrucus, you know, has that typical cauliflower-like appearance, and you can see that in some of the more uh, gross morphology there at the lower power. Uh, Warty has both an exophytic as well as an endophytic uh, growth pattern, and we can see these sort of uh, nodules um, uh, uh, in the deeper tissue. Basaloid uh, has a lot of small blue cells um, uh, that you can see here, again, on low power magnification uh, with the poor uh, prognosis. And P16 staining is what we do in order to diagnose uh, whether uh, patients have um, uh, HPV infection. You can also use PCR methods uh, to be able to diagnose this along with the uh, underlying serotype. Uh, very quickly, this is the uh, staging uh, for the T-staging, uh, AJCC. Uh, I'm not going to belabor this because I know you guys can take a look at this on your own. 
only to highlight uh, the key takeaways, which is lymphovascular elevation is an important factor. It stratifies the T1 into T1A and T1B. And um, T1B and afterwards uh, has a very different risk profile uh, for regional metastasis um, compared to the uh, T1A and below. Um, also, uh, compared to previous staging um, systems, uh, uh, which you may or may not be familiar with, urethral involvement no longer is, is relevant. Um, corpus spongiosum involvement and corpora cavernosa uh, are relevant, but the urethra in of itself is not. And uh, so you don't necessarily need to excise all of it or consider uh, its relative invasion as uh, something that should um, determine your treatment choice. Uh, imaging, you know, is an important part with any sort of cancer staging. Uh, ultrasound uh, has some role. Uh, usually it's improved uh, if you use a combined uh, pharmacologic erection. Um, CT staging is useful for pelvic and inguinal lymph node uh, staging. However, uh, primary tumor has had uh, limited uh, sensitivity and specificity. Um, and it really MRI has emerged as the uh, superior um, imaging modality for the primary tumor evaluation. Um, you can see in this first ring here is sort of the ideal way, you know, movement artifact is the number one uh, limitation uh, for MRI. So there's different protocols uh, here for how to immobilize the penis and also keep it on stretch. So you can really have the best uh, imaging of the underlying structures. Um, uh, this is a uh, normal imaging on uh, frames B and C. You can see the asterisk uh, indicates the corpora cavernosa, while the arrows point to the corpus uh, spongiosum. You see the bulb here, and again in this um, coronal view uh, over here. <clears throat> the roles for MRI, uh, you know, it can help distinguish T1 from T2 from T3, uh, and this will prove important when you're counseling your patients on what their surgical treatment options are. Uh, it can also identify non-palpable satellite lesions, again, determining whether you can do a penile sparing approach or have to do something more radical. And then it also potentially has a role, uh, data is still emerging on identifying local recurrence after organ sparing procedures. Uh, and just as an example here, uh, we can see that there is a obvious lesion on the glands, um, but uh, this is a T1 imaging. Uh, we can see that the, uh, hopefully you guys can see it well, the corpora cavernosa has sort of a very thick dark line at its border and we can see that it's uninterrupted on these multiple different imaging here. Uh, on this uh, third panel over here, uh, the, this now um, uh, alternate imaging, we can see dilation of the urethra, this dark part here, uh, which you know, indicates uh, involvement of the distal part of the urethra. And so uh, again, for this patient, I think this imaging has uh, clearly shown that there's T1 uh, uh, involvement and uh, even uh, T2 involvement however, not T3, um, so potential uh, to uh, help guide what kind of uh, uh, options you're going to offer them. Um, you know, when you identify an abnormal lesion, you want to uh, do a biopsy. could be a punch, could be a wedge. If it's small enough, the wedge should, could be able to excise it entirely. Um, uh, and then also FNA for uh, inguinal lymph node uh, assessment. Uh, quickly going to go over dynamic sentinel lymph node biopsy. Um, like Chad talked about uh, using injecting into the primary tumor, uh, he was talking about indocyanin and green for the whole firefly discussion. Um, in Europe, uh, championed by uh, Dr. Hornblas, this is using uh, more both dye and radio tracer 
to help evaluate clinically node negative groins and being able to identify, as you can see on this diagram on the right, that the affected nodes will cause blockage and relative um, uptake, uh, uh, relatively increased uptake of the radio tracer and the dye. So instead of performing an entire superficial even uh, lymph node dissection, perhaps you can just um, sample the most uh, likely positive central nodes and avoid uh, a morbid procedure. Um, uh, you know, there are about 20% of patients with uh, clinically no negative groins, but would have pathologically positive groins. Um, and uh, this technique has been shown to be able to be used prior or post uh, primary tumor resection. Uh, so let's uh, go over the non-surgical treatment options. Um, topical therapy, break therapy, and uh, to more limited degree, chemo XRT. Uh, topical therapies, uh, this is uh, from the NCCN uh, guidelines um, and should highlight NCCN as well as the European uh, Urology Associ uh, Association of Urology, EAU, both have uh, helpful guidelines uh, for residents if you want a good uh, evidence-based overview of what to do. Imiquimod, um, uh, 5% and 5-FU, 5% are the two um, agents that we use, and really it's CIS patients um, that are the most uh, relevant ones to be treated with this. Um, a lot of this data is from other dermatologic CIS, uh, squamous cell CIS, um, but you know, based uh, using penal uh, literature, we can see anywhere about like a 50% complete response rate. Usually these are about a six week course. Um, there's variations uh, every other day or maybe five days out of a week with two days off. Um, but uh, you have about 50% patients who have a complete response. Uh, there is suggestion that you, if you fail this, you don't necessarily want to repeat it and maybe move on to other procedures, uh, excisional. Uh, brachytherapy, um, these are employed for a T1 and uh, T2 patients, and they suggest maybe select T3 tumors, but really the bulk of the data is on T1, T2. Uh, it, this kind of looks like an Iron Maiden or some sort of uh, torture device, um, but you know, uh, again, this is an organ sparing approach. Uh, the image on the top is uh, from Juanita Crook uh, at Princess Margaret uh, Center, um, who was uh, the initial one who sort of uh, championed uh, this approach and uh, generated the initial data. Uh, the image below is using more high dose uh, brachytherapy uh, with these catheters going through. Um, uh, the recurrence outcomes, you know, are reasonable, and uh, this is shown up in European guidelines as a reasonable option. Uh, five and ten-year recurrence, uh, uh, recurrence-free, uh, recurrence rates rather are fifteen and thirty percent. Um, and uh, similarly, um, you know, ten-year penile preservation rates are um, uh, seventy to eighty uh, percent, depending at the time uh, point you're talking about. Uh, you can salvage failures with surgery, um, but as you imagine, in a radiated field, uh, healing can be somewhat impaired, so you might be more limited on how sparing of an approach you can offer them in the salvage setting. Um, but uh, despite local recurrence, overall survival uh, when comparing um, brachytherapy to surgical therapy appears to be similar. Um, complications you want to counsel patients uh, include urethral medial strictures, as well as painful ulcerations. Uh, um, and, you know, this is going to be really re um, restricted by areas that have radiation oncologists with this sort of technical expertise. 
Chemoradiation, uh, you know, the idea behind this is that if you look at squamous cell carcinoma from other sites, head and neck and cervical, it's in fact the preferred level one uh, evidence supported uh, treatment option uh, for um, some of the more locally advanced sites. Uh, in penile cancer, perhaps due to the rarity, uh, perhaps due to the fact that urologists are primarily managing it, there's not as much uh, uh, results and the results that have been published uh, show that the outcomes are pretty poor. Uh, there's a possible bias because uh, they're using it in patients with known metastatic cancer. Um, there is a group at University of Utah who are using it for these locally advanced but not metastatic lesions. And you can see from these patient, uh, pictures here, you know, the lesions they're treating are not very tiny, subtle ones. These are pretty angry looking tumors that I think most uh, surgeons would say needs, you know, pretty extensive uh, excision. Uh, but in fact, uh, they have pretty good uh, outcomes and uh, they've actually taken uh, the effort to use uh, validated symptom scores as well as uh, erectile function scores uh, that are on the bottom of the pictures. And so I think moving forward, uh, this is something that will probably be examined further um, and uh, hopefully it will be validated as an option. Uh, taking a look at what I'm sure everyone is more uh, interested in as far as uh, surgery that we can do. Um, you know, again, uh, barring from the NCCN guidelines, uh, we can see that there is uh, stratified by both the stage and the grade. Uh, there are different options that are available. Uh, what we'll be talking about today is uh, on the left, um, both divided into penile sparing and then um, what we consider total or radical penectomy. Laser ablation, um, the most commonly used uh, laser types are CO2, KTP, and NDEAG. Uh, these are chosen based off of their depth of penetration. Uh, this image here kind of shows and highlights the uh, relative depths for the three lasers that are defined. Uh, CO2 is uh, the most superficial and often used um, uh, for um, CIS uh, failures uh, after topical therapy. Uh, KTP gets a little bit deeper. And the NDYAG um, actually is sometimes used as more of a coagula uh, coagulation um, uh, modality. Um, you can get some uh, bleeding after using uh, these prior two. Um, and as you can see in there, it goes all the way down to the dermal vessels. So sometimes we'll start with CO2 or KTP and then finish off with NDYAG to make sure that there's not a uh, bleeding complication afterwards. Um, for patients with HPV uh, cancers, you can use uh, 3 to 5% acetic acid in order to help identify uh, the areas that needs to be uh, treated. And in this um, picture here, maybe a little subtle, on the left you see pre-treatment and on the right you see these sort of whitish macular areas that have been highlighted uh, more effectively by the acetic acid. Um, you know, things to keep in mind, this thermal da damage destroys pathology. So uh, you can either do a biopsy before or perhaps do a biopsy of one area in order to have uh, pathology in order to help uh, stratify any future decisions. Uh, Long-term recurrence rates are as low as 17% uh, in some series. Um, and you know, the important thing is really you wanna get off all of the epidermis and you really wanna scrape it down so you're seeing the dermis at the end. Uh, the, uh, without a graft, the, the uh, epidermis will uh, grow back in. Glands resurfacing, uh, you know, the idea behind this is trying to remove the entire epidermis and dermis and then grafting a full thickness skin graft onwards. Uh, these are patients with extensive CIS or uh, some areas of T1, uh, but are interested in preserving uh, their organ. 
Um, and these are pictures uh, from uh, when I was at MD Anderson. Um, and the idea is that you uh, divide the glands into a quadrant and using tenotomy scissors, you excise the entire, um, like I said, epidermis dermis, leaving only the spongy tissue behind. Uh, you excise this completely and uh, sparing obviously the erythromiatus and you're left with um, uh, still uh, some reasonable um, spongy tissue afterwards. <clears throat> After bringing up the circumcised, uh, the penile shaft skin uh, that you've previously released with circumcising incision, you lay on the graft, um, splitting in the middle. Uh, usually you connect it right down where the um, frenulum used to be. Uh, attaching it both to the penile skin as well as the um, spared uh, meatal, urethral meatal skin, and um, secure it all around. Uh, these extra sutures you see here are known as quilting sutures. Uh, these are, um, you know, any hematoma seromas can cause graft failure or lack of graft take. And so these sort of just are loose fitting sutures that keep the graft down on the skin while um, imbibition and inosculation happens uh, to allow the graft to take. Uh, sorry about that. Um, and so what are the outcomes? Uh, they're actually pretty good. Uh, this is uh, results uh, from a group in Ireland uh, that showed that um, they did a prospective study. Uh, they approached about 30 patients, about 19 of those patients underwent uh, glance resurfacing. Um, and they had a very good graft take. Um, and uh, they also prospectively collected um, erectile function scores and uh, most of them were maintained. They said most patients were having sex, you know, uh, as early as 10 days after the procedure. And on the right, we see the histology of what they did. And you see about half of these patients are CIS, but there are a lot of T1 uh, patients there as well too. Uh, of note, these are T1A. Um, you know, again, if you had a biopsy proving T1B, I think this is, uh, while some groups might offer it, I think it's probably safer to proceed uh, with the lower risk category for recurrence. Uh, glanzectomy, uh, these are uh, disease that's limited to the glands, uh, T1 or, you know, T2 as well. Um, and uh, the idea, as you can see the images here, is to create a plane between the corpora cavernosa and uh, the glands. And you're actually able to lift it off entirely and then just transecting the urethra wherever it is free of disease. Um, you can then reapproximate the urethra to the heads of the corpora. Again, if you feel like the corpora are involved, you can trim the tips of uh, those uh, to make sure you have uh, negative margins. Uh, you th then uh, reapproximate the penile skin uh, to the end, and in a similar fashion to the um, glance resurfacing, you again get a, uh, a skin graft and apply it on in a similar way. Uh, outcomes from this, so you can see from the picture on the right that you know cosmetically uh, they can appear pretty good. Um, uh, recurrence rate is as low as four percent. Um, you know when you're counseling patients, you do have to uh, tell them you know they're genital sensitivity, uh, they can expect to have a, quite a bit of a drop. However, uh, nearly 70% of men uh, who had this procedure still retained an ejaculatory reflex. <clears throat> um, and uh, moving on to partial penectomy, uh, this is probably the most common procedure uh, that's performed uh, for early stage penile um, lesions. Um, we can see on these uh, surgical atlas pictures on the right uh, that um, the general idea is to 
sharply cut through uh, the entire uh, penile body, trying to spare as much urethra as you can. You close the corporal bodies um, transversely with sort of a mattress kind of suture in order to prevent bleeding afterwards. Um, and then you can then bring the penile skin, which is usually a lot more loose, uh, and reapproximate it over the urethra, which you should have spatulated to prevent um, urethral medial stricture. Uh, things that one can do to increase a penile length uh, after a partial penectomy is mobilizing the corpora off the pubic arch. You can re release uh, dorsally the suspensory ligament. Uh, ventrally, you can release the penoscural web to increase, uh, increase some you know, perceived length. And then um, you can then sort of reattach uh, the corpora of the penis to the pubis in a way that it keeps it from retracting posteriorly. Goals, you know, the reason we do this is to uh, allow patients to void upright. Uh, this image is from uh, Orchid um, uh, Cancer, which is a, a UK um, uh, uh, organization that's focused on male uh, cancers. And even if, um, you know, there is some retraction and they feel like they can't, many feel like they can't really pee without dribbling, you know, there are these various devices to allow them to uh, urinate while standing up. Uh, and there's also a sexual function uh, to keep in mind. Uh, although again, this is uh, somewhat limited based off of how much of a partial penectomy you are doing. Um, the earlier stage disease has lower recurrence rates. Um, and again, I think it's uh, important that you make sure that you have a margin. Classically, it was a two centimeter margin that was described. Uh, currently, so long as you have a negative margin, that's important. But if there's any question, uh, frozen section can be employed. Um, and for um, more advanced tumors, uh, total and radical penectomy are options. Uh, you know, just a point of uh, specification, I, I think sometimes these terms are used interchangeably, but really, Total penectomy is amputating the penis at the cruce of the corpora cavernosa where they divide. And you can usually spare uh, enough of the urethra uh, to be able to do a perineal urethrostomy. And the pictures on the side you see here indicate just that. Um, after dividing the penis, um, you can then mobilize the urethra and basically reroute it posterior uh, to the scrotum uh, in the perineum. Um, because you haven't touched the sphincter, there's no issues with contents at all. And usually you just tell men, you know, you're going to sit when you pee and maybe they have to lift up their scrotum a little bit in order to aim. Um, while a radical penectomy actually is for very advanced disease where you're removing the entire penis and actually coring out the entire corporal bodies all the way uh, deep into the perineum. And this is a more extensive procedure and one that is honestly not very often done. Uh, here's some pictures of a case that we did recently. This is a man you can see on the left pre-op who actually uh, waited so long he had autopenectomy um, uh, of his penis. Uh, you can see he has SP tube uh, because he was he came in because he was not really able to void. And afterwards, uh, we're able to resect uh, the uh, the penis with negative margins and some of the surrounding scroll skin. But you know the scrotum is fairly forgiving, so you can bring it back up. And then we have rerouted the urethra posterior to that, as you can see uh, from the catheter below. Um, and as far as other reconstructive options, you know, uh, uh, again, we've talked about the most common ones. Uh, I bring this up as I think it's interesting and sort of uh, innovative. Uh, phallic reconstruction, uh, this is described, uh, you know, a little over 10 years ago at this point, but it's a very interesting uh, three-stage procedure. Um, what they do is they harvest uh, 
a radial flap. And so you see on the picture there, there's one part marked U, which is for urethra, the other one marked P for phallus. They've also marked out the vascular supply to either of those areas. And they take the first part for urethra, roll it into the tube with the cutaneous part on the inside. Then they take the other part and wrap it over that. So the idea is sort of a tube within a tube. Uh, these uh, flaps have maintained their uh, vascular access. And then what they do is then divide that vascular access and then re-anastomose it down in the pelvic area. That's the first stage. The second stage, they do some plastic modifications to create the appearance of the glands. And then the final stage is where they go back uh, after all that is healed, uh, they find the stumps of the corpora and then they dilate them. And then they're able to actually place uh, inflatable penile prosthesis. You can see here that they've used these Dacron graphs since there are no distal corpora that actually exist that allows these graphs, to, uh, the uh, cylinders to expand um, and without you know, uh, um, moving uh, too much. Um, this is a cosmetic result in a couple of the patients, which looks pretty reasonable considering it's completely fabricated. And here's an example of an intact uh, functioning um, prosthesis. Uh, now, you know, as with most uh, publications, they're choosing their best pictures. Um, in reality, it's a small percentage of patients who have a good uh, cosmetic outcome and functional outcome with the corpora, oh, with the, I'm um, sorry, the uh, IPPs. Um, but, you know, again, something that uh, patients uh, can get done, especially at centers of excellence with plastic surgeons. Um, and how do we choose, you know, amongst all these options that we talked about here? Uh, survival outcomes really are driven by uh, tumor stage and grade. Uh, these Kalpermeyer plots you see on the right side, right-hand side are using NCDB data. Um, and they're showing that um, these are stratified by the surgical uh, approach. OSS, meaning organ sparing surgery, PP, uh, the red line for partial penectomy, TP uh, for total penectomy. Uh, and you can see that um, actually the uh, patients that have the best outcome appear to be the ones with the organ spare surgery. Now again, this, as Chad mentioned, NCDB is a retrospective database, and so there's some bias involved. But I think one takeaway we can say is that surgical approach uh, doesn't appear to have a predominant impact on survival, usually meaning that most recurrence happens within five years of initial diagnosis. And so long as you follow with these patients, which you should be doing for any sort of organ sparing approach, if there's local recurrence, you can usually salvage them with either conversion to partial or total slash radical penectomy. Um, margin status does matter. Um, uh, studies have shown that um, there's only a 6% nodal recurrence with a negative margin, while there's up to a third uh, of patients with nodal recurrence with positive margin. And we know that nodal positivity is a big inflection point in the, in the prognosis of penile cancer patients. Um, so again, uh, check frozen sections if you're doing organ sparing. You know, um, while we, I think we can all do uh, fairly comfortable with gross uh, margins. You know, again, microsc microscopic margins matter uh, just as much. Um, and so in summary, as far as takeaway points, you know, I think we have shown that uh, penile cancer is rare overall in the West, but there are subpopulations uh, even here in the U.S. that have higher incidence that, you know, need attention to this care. Uh, there are non-surgical approaches to the primary tumor, which can have good results, uh, albeit usually with lower stage tumors. Uh, and it should be understood if those fail, you should progress on to more um, extensive uh, salvage procedures. 
there are numerous variations that exist on the surgical management of penile cancer, um, and they spare the penis to various degrees with varying impacts on sexual and uh, urinary function. And finally, uh, there are various reconstructive techniques that use these plastic skills that you have probably seen with your um, urethral reconstructive or pediatric uh, attendings. Um, and uh, these can be utilized to maintain function and body image for patients. Um, and with that, I think we're done. And so uh, more than happy to take any questions, my email uh, and uh, you know, Twitter handle are there. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for that comprehensive and thorough review of um, penile cancer, the management algorithm for which can be um, somewhat complicated for people that are learning this for the first time. Can you go over for us, um, you said basically the radiotherapy for penile cancer is offered for TIS um, stage lesions. What are, you know, what are the long-term outcomes of that in terms of secondary malignancy, functional status, urethral stricture disease, things like that? And what circumstances would you offer that over um, surgical options? Uh, yeah, great question. So uh, actually the um, data on radiation, so brachytherapy, um, is actually for T1 um, and actually some T2 lesions as well. TIS or the CIS lesions are probably best managed with topical therapy, at least up front. Um, uh, you know, I included some stats, you know, uh, urethral or medial stenosis is a very common complication. Uh, that's up to... Uh, 30% of the time. And then you can also have um, ulcers. You know, as I showed before, you have these sort of, for the brachytherapy, these rods that go through, and those can sometimes uh, leave somewhat of a non-healing and sometimes painful ulcer. Um, those patients, you know, sometimes need uh, maybe a graft over that area to help with healing. Um, and, um, you know, some of those patients, you know, do need maybe a, a glandsectomy or, or some sort of uh, other um, uh, approach to, again, salvage that. Um, but again, at 10 years, you know, about, you know, 30, only 30% of patients um, have failed and it's like 25% of patients still have their um, intact phallus. Okay, another, um, another participant asks, what's the management of urethral squamous cell cancer? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, sort of an entirely different topic, uh, entirely different uh, presentation. Um, are they related? Maybe is you know maybe the implication here, and uh, and they're not. You know, um, uh, you know the majority of penile uh, cancers originate either on the glands or the prepuce. Um, uh, very few from the shaft, um, but uh, urethral primary urethral carcinoma. Uh, while there's some shared risk factors of, of smoking and chronic inflammation irritation, they are separate entities with different treatment um, algorithms. It's also a rare disease, which is why there's not that much published on it, but you can find um, uh, publisher reviews on how to best manage that. Okay, thank you so much. This lecture will be archived on our website and will, will be a great um, high yield review on this topic for all of our resident audience. And we want to thank you again, um, Dr. J. Ratna, for your time on, and reviewing this and for bringing our Empire Series to a close. Today is our last day and you're our very last speaker. So we're very honored to have you. 
And I just want to take a moment on um, the last 10, you know, a couple minutes re remaining. Um, I speak on behalf of our entire Empire team, which is myself, uh, Alex Small, Michael Smigelski, and Miad Movisaji. And we just want to thank everybody for their support of this project and their participation, particularly our New York section leadership, Dr. Risa Gambamian, um, for supporting this project and this idea, and Dr. Uh, Louis Cavusi, who has uh, participated in the lecture series and uh, been supportive of this endeavor. We want to thank Michelle Paoli uh, for her administrative support and really her hard work. She is, we're so lucky to have her in the New York section. She is the glue that keeps us all together. Um, we also want to thank um, Akil Seiji from New York Medical College, who one of our uh, one of the residents that actually volunteered to edit these videos and create a YouTube channel. Um, so we want to we want to just thank everybody. We hope that this series um, has brought our section and our community together. That um, hopefully there'll be a day when we can all get together in person again, and you'll feel comfortable walking up to somebody say, you know, I saw you on Empire, feel that you know that person and that um, that we had each other during these extenuating times in our country and particularly in our section. So thank you. So